King Kong, my favorite Kubrick movie. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Okay. It's the only thing I had in my bed, all right? Why is King right. Kong in your bed? Because I have DVDs on my bed. Do you sleep with it? Yes. Okay, that's great. Okay. You can arrange your DVDs into the shape of another person, Edwin, but they will not provide you warmth. <laughs> For information, I, I have a very nice blanket that my grandmother bought me, so I am perfectly fine. Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 88. As promised, when we ended Secret Movie Club Podcast 87, today we are going to do our official wrap-up of Stanley Kubrick, our Director of the Year of 2020. We're doing that wrap-up in 2022 because of COVID, which interrupted 2020, but we stayed the course. We picked up immediately when we could show movies again, and just about a month ago, we finished that series with a Clockwork Orange Eyes Wide Shut 35mm double feature in December 2021, and today we're just going to talk about Kubrick, talk about his movies. Each of the team members have chosen a movie to start with, and then we'll do just a general conversation. As Connor often says, this is just one of what will probably be many Kubrick podcasts. So this is not the Kubrick podcast, even though it is the Kubrick podcast. Who is with us today? Hey, it's it's Daniel. It's me, Connor Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. Yeah, you speak with mouthful, um, Edwin. Totally going against <laughs> podcasts. He's just he's just frozen on my screen. Yeah. Looks like yeah. he's screaming because the, the Lord's punishing him. <laughs> the Lord's punishing him for breaking anyway, the rule. Hello, America. Meet again. The man with no name. <laughs> oh, he. Oh, he has a name. I wake up in cold sweats thinking of his name. <laughs> We're gonna look at all the papers on your desk, Craig, and like like another Kubrick movie. It's just Edwin's name over and over and over and over again. Yeah, that's the nuclear code. Uh, when you look at it, it's Ed, it's just ECG, Edwin Caesar Gomez, <laughs> in all different kinds of configurations. Uh, and my name is Craig. I'm the founder programmer of Secret Movie Club. It's wonderful to have you guys this week as we head into the tail end of January 2022. First off, please go to secretmovieclub.com and our Eventbrite. We're actually are in the process of announcing, and we may even be done by the time you hear this, our entire February, our entire March. We are returning to our three-month seasons, which we did before COVID. So we are now in our winter 2022 season, January, February, March. Just go and you can see everything we're doing through the end of March, including some really exciting events. I just want to put on people's radars. Things like in February, we are doing the F.W. Murnau Sunrise, actually one of my favorite movies of all time in my top 50 with a 12 piece orchestra live in March. We're doing one of the first animated movies of all time directed by a woman in the 1920s, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed with a live Gamelon band. So lest you thought that Secret Movie Club was going to like lean for the easy money, <laughs> we are not leaning into the easy money. We are going to always lean into creativity and doing what feels exciting. I just hope we can stay solvent. But we are doing this. We are doing the Adventures of Prince Ahmed on a hand-tinted Italian 35 millimeter print with a Gamelon band in March. So check that out. Uh, we are also in February and March. At the beginning of the month, we are announcing a theme, just so everybody knows. And our open mic short night at the end of the month will actually be people making shorts in February on that theme. Our theme in February is going to be love, because we always devote February to different sort of romance movies from however you want to do. You can interpret that however you want, but it, the theme is love, Valentine's Day, romance, but go wherever you want. Could be a love for your dog. Could be a love for 
for a city. Could be that you don't believe in love. Could be hate, which you think is the op. Could be indifference. Could be that you're drained of love after two years of coronavirus stress. I don't care. Be creative. And then make that short, which has got to be under 10 minutes. Then submit it to us, and then we'll line up our open mic short night. And then in March, our theme is actually musicals, because we're doing March musicals. So let's see if people can do short musicals. You can trip it out however you want, but that's our theme. You're going to see all that. And we have many other amazing events coming up. But this week, this Friday, we are doing The Wild Bunch and Straw Dogs, both on 35 millimeter. Thanks to Edwin Cesar Gomez, who reminded me that who reminded me that Harry that Harry Guero probably had a 35 millimeter print of straw dogs and he did. So we're doing a wild bunch straw dogs, 35 here at the club. We'd love to have you. Those are also my two favorite Peck and Paul movies by far. And I love Peck and Paul Saturday. We continue our John Ford director of the year with two movies. You have to see if you really want to understand John Ford, the informer on 35, by the way, I can't believe we're getting a 1934 movie on 35, but the first movie he ever won best director for Steven Spielberg, has gone on the record, and I know why, as saying that he watches The Informer before he directs most of his movies. If you have never seen The Informer, one of the most amazingly, maybe a little too much now, maybe John Ford was leaning a little too into showing how talented he was in that movie, but The Informer, and you you can't watch Citizen Kane without realizing that The Informer and Stagecoach, and I mean, Informer is just crazy how good it is. We're doing The Informer on 35mm, and then The Fugitive, which was John Ford's one of his first movies after World War II, based on a Graham Greene novel, The Power and the Glory, one of my favorite Graham Greens, about a priest in a non-named country where religion has been banned, shot by amazing Mexican cinematographer uh, Gabriel Figueroa, starring Henry Fonda, Dolores Del Rio, and Pedro Armendariz. It's got problems because they changed some of the more controversial things in the novel, like the priest <laughs> like has a kid and has an affair with a woman in the novel, which they should have kept. But in 1946, that wasn't going to pass the Breen office, so so they give the affair and the kid to the fascist, which kind of throws off what the novel was about, which is that you can be spiritual and religious and human at the same time. That nevertheless, great movie, The Fugitive, John Ford, directing the hell out of it. Tuesday, January 25th, we moved our Andrew Bujalski double of mutual appreciation and computer chess because Mr. Bujalski is joining us uh, remote from Austin, but he is joining us to tell you how he made two great movies of the 21st century on with limited means computer chess is one of my favorite movies of 2013 and 2013 had some bangers guys it had wolf of wall street it had before midnight oz the great and powerful but computer chess which was shot on old vhs camcorders from 1982 and has the crazy premise of being a computer chess tournament in 1982 at like some hilton type motel six that is also hosting a swingers convention and then it goes sci-fi i love computer chess and the mutual appreciations you usually considered one of the greatest mumblecore movies ever made from the early aughts. Andrew Bujalski, who made both, writer-director, is joining us. And I'm just really grateful to you, Mr. Bujalski. So as part of our 2022 Make a Movie campaign, you're going to get to talk to the guy who made two of the greatest movies on limited means of the last 20 years. So come 
attend. And both of them are on 35. And then uh, on Wednesday, uh, we're doing our open mic short night. We hope uh, you will come. It is already filled. We announced that we were doing open mic short night, and I'm so excited. We got 25 submissions or something like within two days. So we're going to just go first come first serve because it's open mic. We are not gatekeeping. We're not. We're just you submitted. We're going to go by timestamp and you're going to get into your open mic short night. And uh, we want this to be the first of what we hope will be at least a monthly thing of encouraging people to make short films, meet people, meet filmmakers, and let's make it. Let's be part of the new American renaissance. And then Thursday, uh, we kick off our year-long daring documentary series. This is a real glaring omission for me. I love documentaries. I've shot documentaries my whole life. And documentaries make you a better fictional filmmaker. I absolutely believe that. Just look at Scorsese. Look at John Ford, who shot documentaries. We are going to kick it off with two female-directed documentaries. Araya, which was made in the 1950s about salt miners in South America. We're showing that on 35 million. One of Jean Renoir's favorite docs of that decade, rarely shown on 35. And then Agnes Varda's career changing, form changing, The Gleaners and I. Come watch two female directed dynamite docs. That's on Thursday, one on 35. One was shot digitally, so we're showing it digitally. And we'd love to have you. And then we will announce more coming up. And as always, you can follow us at Secret Movie Club. Go to secretmovieclub.com because at this point, we got original content, we got film festivals, we got blogs. Check us out out. You're the reason we're here. And then you can also just go to Eventbrite if you live in the Southern California area and you want to see some of these events or be part of the community, make some shorts, whatever. Stanley Kubrick, he was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, he's just a, he's a good guy, good guy, good, good, uh, good dude. You know? Little-known director. Uh, we decided to devote 2020 to him. I think we're already messing up, Edwin, because I think even though he's a good director, I don't know if good dude would be an appropriate yeah. <laughs> label for the man. I mean, I mean, I, mean, I, I think he was a, some kind of a good dude, man. I don't know. Well, he was a complicated cat. We'll, we'll get into that, like many geniuses. Yeah, I got, got some problems here now and there. He's capital G great, but it's arguable if he's lower G good. We're going to get into all that. Stanley Kubrick, born in uh, 1930, I believe, 1929. He was born in New York to Jewish middle class parents. He actually was famously a very mediocre high school student because he was probably beyond everybody in high school, eventually became a photographer. A photograph he took of the day that Franklin Delano Roosevelt died and of a really depressed newsstand operator was famous. And so Look Magazine hired him as a teenage. He kind of has a sort of Steven Spielberg story. Basically, Kubrick was taking photographs and selling them as a teenager. Then he went into documentary filmmaking and made this really famous short Day of the Fight, which would sort of become a template for one of his earliest features, Killer's Kiss. He also did Flying Padre, one I love about a priest who flies around New Mexico uh, ministering to the poor and the indigent. He was hired by the Seafarers Union to do a 30-minute short. I've seen all of these, by the way. We showed them all. We actually, probably for the first and last time, were able to exhaustively show everything he did because Kubrick didn't actually make a lot of feature films compared to, say, someone like John Ford who did 160. There's just no way that we can do 160 movies. They don't even exist. Some of them don't exist anymore, which is tragic from the 1910s. But uh, anyway, so he did those docs. He then got his dad's friends to give him money. And I am proud of this. 
His debut feature he shot here in L.A. in the San Bernardino Mountains, Angeles Forest, uh, with Paul Mazursky, weirdly acting in it, Fear and Desire. But he, he made this movie, which he disowned. He never liked to say it was his debut feature, even though I don't know why you disown it. It's better than most debut features, even though it's got problems, which is a war movie that's too allegorical. It's like an unnamed war in an unnamed country and everybody's unnamed. And it's like man with a capital M and all that stuff. But it's still got some great Kubrick iconography. Everything that's going to make Kubrick Kubrick is in there. You know, you can look at it as a prototype for Paz and Glory, although Paz and Glory is like way above and beyond. And then after that, it didn't make any money, but Kubrick lived to see another day. He actually was starving in New York and made his money as a chess hustler, hustling people in chess, which uh, started his, not started, he was a lifelong chess obsessive. And he would actually sort of stroke egos like George C. Scott's ego by playing chess with them just to get them to give good performance even though he could totally like kill anybody if he wanted to. Yeah, I mean, Kubrick famously would be like, here, just pick a piece and I'll take it away. And he would start the game a piece under just so that it would be a little like more evenly matched. I mean, he was a hustler. He was a chess hustler. But anyway, condensing, he, he made Killer's Kiss. And then he met a guy named James Harris who was independently wealthy. And this really sort of solidified him. He was able to make a number of movies with James Harris's backing the way he wanted to make them. He then made Paths of Glory, which was a minor hit. And then Kirk Douglas hired him to take over from Anthony Mann on Spartacus. He actually was going to make a Western with Marlon Brando, One-Eyed Jacks. He makes Spartacus, becomes a huge hit. But Kubrick so hated the experience, so hated it, that he didn't feel it was his own movie because he had to fight Douglas on everything. That after that, he moved to England. He made Lolita. And from Lolita on, everything he made was in England. His way with Final Cut, he never made another movie without Final Cut after Spartacus. And he then went on to make some of the greatest movies of all time. 2001, Dr. Strangelove. Shining, Barry Lyndon, Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket, Eyes Wide Shut. Although his pace got slower and slower as he got older. I picked Dr. Strangelove because it's one of the movies of his that I really love because he's somebody who I really respect, but I don't quite love a lot of his movies. And we've already talked about my favorite of his movies, which was The Shining, which we talked about in a full episode with Brian, I think, last year. But Strangelove was one of the first ones I saw of his I think growing up getting into film you hear specifically the one two three strange love 2001 and a clockwork orange are the ones I think you hear about the most or at least those are the ones that I heard about the most and I watched all three and shining yeah the shining's like different though because the shining's like a horror more of a pop culture thing and the other three are usually more held up I think more and more the shining is being reevaluated but those other three are a little bit more seen as like big film canon and the shining I think especially when I was growing up, was a little more on the edge, was more of just like a, a great horror movie. I like 2001 and A Clockwork Orange, but I don't really love either one of them. I find them a little, I don't know if opaque is the right word. Or like impenetrable. Yeah, I find them hard to engage with, and not because I don't get them. I think because I do get them, and I find them a little like arty in a surfacey level, which is extremely dismissive. I own that. But Strange Love is just so tight and witty and funny if people don't know dr strangelove is a political satire thriller about these government machinations in the u.s that end up potentially causing a, a nuclear holocaust with russia making fun of mutually assured destruction making fun of mid-century anti-communist craze and notably it precedes 
the Nutty Professor sequel in having Peter Sellers play multiple roles, including the president, including a British officer. Captain Mandrake. And most notably, the eponymous character, Dr. Strangelove, a former Nazi scientist who can't seem to stop wanting to Nazi salute the president and call him Mein Fuhrer. It's a blast. I actually rewatched it last night, and it's funny. Sterling Hayden's character, who's... Jack D. Ripper. Oh, I didn't even realize that that was his, his name. Arguably based on Curtis LeMay. The movie doesn't really have a villain, but he's the closest to it in the sense that he's the one who causes all of the bad things to happen and is the source of the conflict. And at one point, he talks about the fluoridation of water, which made me laugh, and I had never caught that before because that's still... Alex Jones, not that long ago, was talking about how fluoride in the water was making the frogs gay. (laughs) What's wrong with gay frogs, man? It's not natural. (laughs) It's a great movie. I do find Kubrick... I remember years ago, people would compare Nolan to Kubrick as like a new Kubrick. And for a while, I was like, when I was really hot on Nolan, I was like, thumbs up. And then when I was less hot on Nolan, I was thumbs down. I think I've kind of evened out on that opinion in that... They both, and Kubrick, I think, is a better director for sure. But I do think it's interesting the way that Kubrick's stuff is this very art-driven, very voice-driven stuff. But it also does have a reach that is both a good thing and a bad thing. Because I think about something like Full Metal Jacket and the fact that there are going to be people who watch Full Metal Jacket and unironically are like, military makes you tough. Let's go over there and uh, go to war. I mean, that's an issue with war movies. You know, Strange Love. I know for a fact that there are people who are going to watch it and think it's this great satire and then still have this unabashed, like, well, communists, commies are bad and thumbs down to commies. And But there's nothing you can do about that. I think it's interesting that Kubrick has maybe achieved this type of success that, like, works against him for me personally sometimes. Oh, you mean, like, the what Daniel is referred to as the, like, college dorm room poster syndrome? Yeah, where, where people look at, a, like, a clockwork orange and are like, these guys rule. <laughs> and- <laughs> Strange Love and 2001 are my two favorite Kubricks. I watch them probably once a year. 2001 is in my top 10. I'm, I'm you know, that's pretty basic take, but I, I do think it's one of the greatest movies ever made. And I still think it's the holy grail of sci-fi that no one, not even Tarkovsky has touched. Personally, that's me. I think Tarkovsky may have come the closest with Solaris on that. But yeah, Strange Love is a miracle. I mean, Strange Love is hilarious and we loved it as Americans and it's totally making fun of us. It's totally being like, we're going to be the reason the world ends because of American personalities and the way that we are. And you're just you're laughing all the way to the apocalypse. And when you think that it was made in 64, you know, it's not as if we were done with the Cold War in 64. It's not like tensions had even though they had gone down at that point, the height of the Cold War still probably has to be the 1950s or the Cuban Missile Crisis. But the Cuban Missile Crisis is fresh. It's only two years ago. By the time this movie comes out, I mean, Kennedy is what, only a year in the grave when they make this? To think about a director who does that, I don't know what reaction he was expecting. The biggest surprise must have been that, like, everyone loved it. <laughs> it was like the cathartic laugh that everyone needed. I don't know, Daniel, Edwin. Yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a strange job. It's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good picture. It's a good picture. You know, I, I love it. Daniel? Any strange love hot takes? No hot takes. Uh, my hot take is that Austin Powers' gold member owes everything to Strange Love, and that hit me when I was like 15. The connection between that, and I remember joking about it with my friends, and none of them understood what I was trying to get at, where I was like, Dr. Strange Love is like this 60s gold member, Austin Powers' gold member. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, the one guy's playing everyone. It's so funny. 
and no one thought it was funny but me. I've come to reappreciate that it's better than Goldmember. Um, <laughs> and I like Goldmember. Connor was saying the craziest thing with Kubrick and, and this in general is Kubrick's filmography is impossible to watch without, like you don't really get into his stuff unless you're sort of involved in some type of film thing or you're reading things about film. The concept of experiencing any of these fresh without the cultural milestones they are is impossible. Like if I watch Strange Love now, it would be... 30 years of culture would suddenly make sense. Like the Simpsons would make sense. Everything that's referenced it, whether directly or just in its wink or in its like sort of general vibe would suddenly like the expectation of what you're witnessing. I would love to hear from someone who's sort of on the outside that gets to watch this with a fresh of like, I have no idea what this is. And I don't really know what the references are pointing at from modern pop culture. It's sort of the Citizen Kane syndrome where everyone watches Citizen Kane now and they're like, uh, I don't, okay. Not realizing that everything comes out of Kane. And I think that, like you were saying, Kubrick had such a talent for the visual, for what was going to be like an eye worm for people or what have you, that people are like, well, I've seen that all the time. People, yeah, you've seen it all the time because everyone's imitating Kubrick. Everybody's taking that iconography and reworking it. And so it's like he's a victim of of his own genius in a a weird way. Yeah, I do think in the same realm, when something sort of achieves that status, the danger is also that if anyone is against it, which you can never talk someone out of their opinions or their taste, but being against it or thinking it's fine, it becomes this weird thing where people are like, no. And there's this whole other thing again. It's just a nightmare. It's really this beautiful nightmare <laughs> filmography of you can't be right. You are wrong. And it's awful, but also brilliant. And I love Strange Love. I think Strange Love is a top two or three keeper for me too. I, my first realization, real realization of irony in cinema, my dad showed my sister and I Strange Love when I was eight. Or seven. And there's just my dad. It's my dad rolled. He was like, this comedy's hilarious. Watch it. So we're watching it with my dad. And that those shots where the army is shooting at itself in front of the sign that says peace is our profession. I remember being like, oh, that's funny because they're killing each other. <laughs> and then I looked back at my dad. And my dad was like, right. And I was like, he could see that. I, <laughs> he could see that I got my dad was actually I mean, I don't want to get into it. My dad worked for the Department of Defense, so he was not he was a very complex dude. But he my dad appreciated irony. I picked Fulmino Jacket. Fulmino Jacket, you know, it's a, it's a great war picture, you know. I saw it at the million dollar when when you programmed it and um, plays totally differently on the big screen, by the way. No, it does. It, it, it most certainly does. I like it a lot more now. I did too. Yeah. You know, I saw it when I was like 13, 13 or 14, I think. I was just like barely getting into war movies. And, and out of the war movies I've seen, I, I think Full Metal Jacket might be up there. Probably a personal favorite of Kubrick's for me. I, I, I think that's my favorite movie of his. It's something about Fullmetal Jacket that I realized after watching it at the million dollar. It's just like, like how it starts at basic training and how like roughly it is, you know, just to be in the military and, you know, do all these training, how one guy could get pushed too far. In all these other movies, you never see that at all. And I think this movie shows what it's like to do basic training. All like, What if one guy just suddenly snapped because he couldn't take too much? And that's what Private Pilot was. And actually, no, it goes to the Vietnam sequence, um, which I, I think it's awesome. I, I didn't know it when I when I read trivia for it that everything was shot in the UK. I actually thought they went to Vietnam, like somewhere in the Philippines or Thailand. But no, they shot everything in the UK. And the thing that bugged me, like, why, why did palm trees in the background? I'm pretty sure they didn't have that over there. But no, it works. It, no matter what, it still feels like a Vietnam War movie. 
the, another thing I, I noticed while watching is some of the action scenes are surprisingly smooth. The thing that doesn't play on the small screen that plays on the big screen is that Tet Offensive sniper sequence when the buildings are destroyed and on fire. I mean, you feel like you're in the apocalypse when you see it on the big screen. You don't feel that on the small screen. No, you don't. You don't at all. And seeing that was like the most terrifying thing I've ever seen in a movie. It's just, it's just a dynamite movie. I, I love the cast. They're great. Especially the scene where the last shot where they're like, you know, talking about the sniper they did a shot and like how they're bragging about it. And, and you see Matthew Moulding's face like, like this, this is... And I will say, I, out of every Kubrick movie, the soundtrack, I think this like this is best for soundtracks. That had a killer track in it. My, my favorite thing about Full Metal Jack, especially on the revisit we had this year, that I sort of never realized, but there's not like a character in the first half. No one is allowed to be a human. There's no conversations between people. We sort of see them getting prepped to go to, to boot camp. And we have Arlie Ermey, the drill sergeant. There's not an interaction between characters that has any merit that builds them to be more than just these pogs until like very far along into the movie. And it makes it incredibly hard to latch onto intentionally because it's difficult. The first half, I think if people, I think of common, not a hot take is that there's a division between the things that I, I think works because it's sort of the second half echoes the first and needs to be this sort of thing, even if it is sort of unsettling and creates a different experience. But I've always thought it's so interesting that just Kubrick gets talked a lot about this coldness. And I think it's so on display here because there's just no humanity in the people until you're what you're sort of having to watch them exist with these things that they've learned and rewatching it kind of knowing that you're sort of looking for anything to sympathize with but it's so difficult because there's just nothing to latch on to you know nothing about them until down the road you see things happen to them that are bad they're just constantly berated and we're sort of as the audience in the same thing there's just this you kind of just have to exist in the moment with them and i think this kind of echoes some of his other work but his character work and not letting people be characters in my opinion is like this insane concept that works in this, and I'm not sure if it would work in really anything else. I think it's all right. I uh, <laughs> I don't really like war movies, and I don't know what that is. Maybe analyze my family history and where I grew up. Because it's so aggressively like pushed where you came from? Yeah, I grew up in a very hyper-pro-military environment, and I'm not anti-individual people in the military. I'm dubious about the military itself, and a lot of that stems from the fact that my grandpa's both fought in World War II, which is typically seen as the last war that everyone can agree upon as being good in terms of the uh, U.S.'s involvement. I think Full Metal Jacket is a movie where, again, I can intellectualize why it's good, and I totally, if someone's like, I love this movie, I'm like, you know what? Thumbs up. (laughs) But uh, I think on an emotional level, and for me, film is much more emotional than intellectual, I don't really jive with a lot of it. I do think the first half is a lot stronger and I have a lot stronger emotional feelings about it. But it's it's interesting. It's obviously like like all of his movies are for the most part. Uh I would say you mentioned Seafarers earlier. I watched that and I thought it was the most boring thing I've ever seen in my life. But I think like most of his movies it's definitely worth watching. And I did like it more when I watched it on the big screen at the million dollar theater. But Again, I think I've never really quite connected with it the way I think some people do. I sometimes think of cinema of emotion, cinema of... 
of sensation and then cinema of ideas. So, for example, cinema of sensation might be Jurassic Park or Jaws. You know, you're just like, what a ride. Like, that's wow. You know, and that's great. And I love those movies. Cinema of emotion might be Raging Bull. It might be, you know, on the waterfront. It might be before sunset. You know, you're just feeling emotion and human emotion and family and relationships. And then cinema of ideas I firmly would put people like Kubrick where, you know, he's clearly pursuing an idea. And I this is different for me than intellectual cinema. And and this is just semantics and words, so I don't want to get a whole into it. I love the cinema of ideas. I'm wary, as you said, Connor, of intellectual cinema, because I don't think cinema's purpose is to lecture people or be didactic or be like, I have the answer, which I think is ridiculous, I guess, just from a human standpoint, considering that all the things that bedevil us now have bedeviled humanity for 10,000 years. But the cinema of ideas would be, here's something I want to explore. And I think Kubrick is really fascinating at it. And the thing I never realized in Full Metal Jacket is I think it's less a war film or a Vietnam movie than it is about murder and killing and humanity's capacity to both view itself as transcending the natural world and being part of the natural world. And I think the thing that's fascinating to me that a lot of that I never realized until really watching it the last time is Matthew Modine only kills once in the movie and he kills the sniper at the end not to kill like the other guy who's like, I kill a shotter, ha ha ha, but it's a mercy killing. And she's actually begging to be shot. She's begging to be killed. But she's like, you know, after she shot all of them, she's like, don't leave me here to die in this hovel. And he shoots her and you're sitting there. And I think it's Kubrick doing this thing of how irreducible it is to really understand murder and killing and humanity. He does it a little more on the nose in the movie with the general where he has born to kill. And he's like, oh, I think I'm getting at the Jungian duality of man, <laughs> you know, and the general's like private. You better get your act together and fight this war or whatever. But I didn't realize that that's what Kubrick's getting at is the irreducibility of, of murder and death and who we are as human beings, which are killers, uh, murderers, and at the same time trying to transcend that. My favorite thing about Full Metal Jacket's second half is that we enter things and there's no there's no setup, there's no buildup, there's no goal. We're just in this battle with them with no indicator of what the achievement's supposed to be for these people. We're just kind of in it and they're having to deal with this sniper and you're just kind of along for the ride. And it sort of paints this bleak, you're asking what are we doing here in the same way they are because we're just sort of lost as an audience. And it kind of makes this really engaging section because it's not really clear. Because usually, you know, we have a setup, we're doing this. Oh, we know that the opening, you know, Saving Private Ryan, we're going to get Ryan and everything leading up to that. But we don't really know outside of survival what's going on or what the goal is. And I think that speaks a lot to sort of his viewpoint on war. You know, it's funny because he does the same thing in Pass of Glory too. Like you see a scene of a war sequence that happened and right after that you go right into the men. Pass is one of my favorites and it's, it's super interesting paired with these conversations about like Kubrick and his general stuff. I think a lot of Kubrick's stuff is about war. You know, he mentions the war and Clockwork Orange and the wars in Full Metal Jacket and sort of there's always this kind of concept of what this has done to people. And then Passive Glory is obviously in black and white, but at the time it came out, color was in full swing and there were already these big epics, war epics that were in color and huge widescreen vistas. And I think the choice to shoot it as if it were old 
newsreel footage, including the sort of as they move toward the anthill during the some of the scenes in Passive Glory, which I guess I should explain really quick, is, is essentially about a, a battalion that is being requested, sort of forced to make a push to obtain this anthill that the Germans hold. In World War One. this French general is demanding it because he wants a promotion. It's a strategic thing, but it's a suicide mention. And the colonel that's asked to do it, he's pushed back that it's wrong, but ultimately decides that duty has to happen. And it, and it goes very poorly, as one might imagine. And it's sort of got these really interesting concepts. I think Kubrick talks a lot about, and I've been trying to kind of comprehend, but the difference between patriotism and nationalism and how Kubrick views, I think nationalism is inherently maybe evil, but he also looks at patriotism, especially under the American lens Full Metal Jacket really fetishizes patriotism. Because if it's supposed to be this concept of you love your country, it's not a political thing. It's this concept of this thing that you love. But we've sort of taken it in culture as because I am born in America, America is better and I am better for it, which is this very weird thing that we've sort of stretched around it. I think a lot of the, the stuff he does, it's, it's interesting to watch Full Metal and Passive Glory so close together because of how different they are when the subject matter, if the theme is so similar. Um, the biggest takeaway from watching it at the million dollar though was the sound. I never really paid attention, especially because Full Metal Jacket is, has such a, a soundtrack and Kubrick's very talented at dropping uh, these great needle drops. Paths of Glory has, is almost all diegetic sound. There's almost no music and you start to kind of become numb. Every time we're in the trenches, there's just constant gunfire and explosions. And every time we cut back to conversations in those giant mansions with the higher ups of the army, it's just silent for a minute. And it's very jarring, at least to me on the big screen that I never noticed where you're just like, oh, I'm in the same way that these soldiers are being plummeted constantly. You're sort of in that too. And you get used to it because there's conversations happening in the trenches. And then you're back to that. And it feels like very odd. And this sort of shift from, we have these huge spaces and these wide lenses for the general scenes. And then this just claustrophobic tight shots for the soldiers that sort of puts you in their shoes. And there's a lot of techniques in Passive Glory that have become his staples with his tracking shots that are so effective in that realm that he then used to great effect. But going back to sound, because the only real score is that reoccurring snare drum, it sort of removes any sentimentality from the film because you have to sort of place, I think music so often tells us how to feel or uplifts this way that the director wants you to feel and stripping that away puts it on you to have to decide how you feel in this. Does this, rush of action as these people go into battle feel like this cool thing that's going on or do you feel as as hopeless as they do and i think it's uh really fascinating it's one of the ones i've returned to more than i expected to because it has such a dense idea to stuff more so to me i, I return to it more than full metal jacket for that reason i really love the last shot of paths of glory which i think is like the most humanist part of the whole film which brings me tears every time i see the ending because how jar dropping and how powerful it is you know how war is up and how all this shit happening to them, you know? I think uh, Paths is probably my second favorite Kubrick movie that I love. First being 2001, third being Full Metal Jacket. I really appreciate Paths of Glory a lot. It's like no war movie I've ever seen before, ever. Paths is one of my favorite Kubricks. The third act in the movie is essentially this horrible execution where three soldiers are picked to be executed for cowardice, even though the general was the one who executed a suicide mission order. And you can feel the hypocrisy 
of this general who doesn't have to fight. In fact, he shot, as Danny was saying, in like a palace with no explosions or whatever. So it's very easy for him to order men to their deaths. And meanwhile, when he Fs up and it doesn't go well, he then handpicks three men to be executed for cowardice. And they weren't even cowards, really, just to do it, to make like some kind of statement. So again, Kubrick really gets you. But what's interesting, sometimes Kubrick is labeled as a colder, cynical filmmaker. I think Connor touched on that. And I would just reference to people that surprisingly, most of his movies end on either ambivalent emotional notes or blisteringly optimistic emotional notes, which a lot of people don't remember. So Paths of Glory could easily have ended with those three guys being executed. Fade to black. The world sucks. Instead, what it does is it goes to this bar and this German woman who would go on to become Mrs. Kubrick, Christiane Kubrick, is carted out and she sings a song and all these men break into tears. That's the ending of the movie. And they're all reminded of their humanity, which cuts across national lines. 2001 ends with aliens and humans forming a new kind of race and humanity being brought into the intergalactic galaxy of species. There's no more positive ending in the history. History of cinema, then positing that we survive the Cold War, make contact with aliens and become part of the cosmic community. Clockwork Orange ends with Alex being given back his free will. Whatever you think about that. Shining ends with Wendy and Danny getting away. Full Metal Jacket ends with Matthew Modine living to see another day. Eyes Wide Shut ends with Tom Cruise and Nikhil Kidman affirming their marriage affirming their marriage and staying in their marriage. So I think that Kubrick is often misunderstood when people call him a cynical filmmaker. I think he does that thing where he goes to hell to get to heaven. I definitely don't think he's an optimistic filmmaker. I'm not necessarily making that argument, but I think the idea that he's cynical, I don't feel people are really engaging with his ideas. Personally, that's me. By the way, I mean, he was married three times, but with Christiane, married for 40 years, by all accounts, a family man, loved his daughters, uh, you know, yada, yada. I had picked Lolita because it's often not talked about when people talk about Kubrick movies. It's very much what I would call a transition movie. You know, it's almost like when you were talking about Chris Nolan, Connor, a lot of people don't talk about Insomnia because <laughs> it's sort of a Chris Nolan hinge movie, but it's really an interesting movie. Lolita for me, I remember seeing that when I was in high school and I got really excited, not by pedophilia, uh, <laughs> just to be clear, uh, but I got, I was like, wow, this is really taboo subject matter. This is really kind of interesting what this movie's trying to do. He's really taking chances. Like Peter Sellers is great. It's a rough draft for Strange Love. He plays several characters in it. James Mason commits to it. Sue Lyon and Shelley Winters are great. There's all this open sexuality in it that's really interesting. There's a rough draft of a hotel clerk hitting on James Mason, which Kubrick will reference in Eyes Wide Shut when Alan Cumming hits on Tom Cruise, which a lot of people never pick up. Uh, it's the exact same scene, and it's Kubrick referencing himself. And I just remember watching the filmmaking and being like, wow, there's this great school dance sequence early in the movie that I love where Peter Sellers is dancing with a beatnik and he's totally not into it. I was like, man, Kubrick's doing a lot of daring, weird, filmically exciting stuff. And I just love Lolita for that. And I would just go on to say as my summation on Kubrick that whenever I see a Kubrick movie, inevitably, I may not get it the first time. In fact, I often don't. This is the thing people talk about with Kubrick. I often only get it the second, third or fourth time, but I'll be like, whoa, that was daring. Whoa, he was really taking a chance there. Barry Lyndon, which we haven't touched on. To me, Kubrick makes one of the most damning comments about humanity I've ever seen in Barry Lyndon, which is here's Barry 
this opportunist who is sort of just in it for the money. And at the end of the movie, he's one of the most honorable characters. You realize that everyone around Barry is as opportunistic as he is. And it's as damning a portrait of society as I've ever seen. And I think a real important reminder that all the people that lecture us about you know, this is bad behavior. These people are bad. Dut, dut, dut. Well, you know, take a moment because inevitably these people that are lecturing you today, it's going to come out what they did tomorrow. And maybe you need to slow your roll before you're going to jump on the bandwagon about damning other people. You know, and Kubrick was an atheist, but I, you, you know, judge not lest ye be judged. Atheist, agnostic, secular, or spiritual. Very few words are wiser than that to me. Uh, and I think Barry Lyndon really nails that. Kilberg is uh, a cool dude, man. Gonna stick with it. Cool dude. Great dude. I'm gonna say very uncool dude, but a very good filmmaker. There are certain <laughs> filmmakers who I love who I'd be like, oh, it'd be great. I'd love to get like a coffee with like Sam Raimi or something. I don't even drink coffee, but Kubrick, I he, obviously he's dead, so I wouldn't want to be in a room with him right now, anyways. <laughs> but I think even when he was alive, I'd probably be like, you know what? I'm good. Let's not give that short shrift because you brought this up early and I think this is important. People should watch his daughter's documentary on The Shining and how he treats Shelley Duvall, which is pretty unacceptable. He's uh, literally abusive to Shelley Duvall. Or even going into something like George C. Scott, there's like takes in that that George C. Scott didn't know were actually takes, which is obviously less bad. It's not quite as abusive. It's not really that big of a deal because he's... But he lied. He lied to George C. Scott to get the performance. He's definitely seems like a very manipulative director in terms of how he gets it. But the duality of that is also that even Shelley Duvall later on was like, this is the best thing I've ever done. And she's essentially said that she wouldn't have traded it. Which is important. And I, you know, and I, I think Strange Love is arguably George C. Scott's best performance as well. It definitely goes into that idea of the capital G great man versus the lowercase g good man. Yeah, I'm in the same ballpark. I think Kubrick being a little film school nerd, Kubrick is talked about in a lot of people's sort of introduction to the world of bigger things, maybe. And I think it's interesting. He gets clocked as having this really specific type of filmmaking. People are always like, oh, that's very Kubrickian when it's just symmetry or something. But really the stuff <laughs> he aims for and the performances he gets and the differences between each movie, especially having gone through his filmography over the last few years with the Secret Movie Club, it's fascinating to watch how different each thing is and feels and what it covers. He gets kind of clocked down as maybe this very singular person for aesthetic traits sometimes. And I think that's fascinating that he can be someone that people love so, so much for the visual language, which he tells, but also his stuff works on this very interesting thematical level about a variety of things, but also just about humans and their fallacies and Maybe, you know, are they good or maybe they're good. Maybe there's there's hope, et cetera, et cetera. Despite this, you know, he's cold aesthetic that he gets labeled. So there you go. As everything, this is just the beginning of a conversation. We hope uh, you secret movie clubbers will take and carry on with you. And, and the Kubrick conversation is always ongoing. And there are just so many things we haven't really touched on. I know we've talked 2001, but I could do a 10 hour podcast on 2001. So, I, you know, he exposed the Hollywood pedophile cabal and eyes wide shut, <laughs> yeah. which is why he was killed. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah, that's a whole thing. But I will say watching Eyes Wide Shut a month ago, I had always focused on the sexual dynamics. But that movie is also about class. And I had not actually realized that part of his idea and it, it infuriated me, frankly, I'm a middle class guy and I got infuriated. I mean, the entitlement that the Sidney Pollack character, the way that he talks to Dr. Bill at the end of the movie where he's like, you're just out of your league. You know, we're just the super rich and the super rich can do whatever they want and you cannot. There's something infuriating about that. Infuriating. And I think whatever the conspiracy theories are, I think it's valid to be like Eyes Wide Shut was also a movie about class and the ridiculousness of certain things. I'm going to flip my chair because I'm Irish and middle class. Uh, all right. Uh, <laughs> Pop culture final thoughts. You know, after my little Blu-ray run, regrettably, uh, I picked up the Arrow Blu-ray of Sam Pickapaw's Major Dundee which I have seen once, about like 10 minutes of it, but never finished it. So I watched it, loved every minute of it, probably my new favorite Peckinpah movie. Richard Harris is great, Charles C. Heston is also great, and then right after that I watched The Patriot. Nice little feature right there. Gibson, you know. Another totally unproblematic person. <laughs> it was a good though feature for me. I, I loved every minute of The Patriot. It was. Is that a Roland Emmerich movie? Yes, yes it is. Yes it is a Roland Emmerich movie. And it's probably his only great movie he's ever done. Gibson's great. John Williams is great. Keith Ledger's great. That British dude gets killed awesome. So yeah. Uh, if you want to hear what I've been up to, listen to the last episode and you can catch me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. I haven't watched anything since our last podcast. Um, <laughs> uh... uh Oh, I'll I'll say there's a lot of good music from last year. Some of my favorite albums that I highly recommend checking out. If you're if that's your thing, I think Lucy Dacus's home videos, Snail Mail's Valentine, Julian Baker's Little Oblivions, Japanese Breakfast Jubilee, Faye Webster's I Know I'm Funny, Haha, Manchester Orchestra's The Million Masks of God, Turnstiles Glow On, Wolf Alice, Weather Station, Cassandra Jenkins, Illuminati Hotties, Pom Pom Squad. There's so much good music last year. The War on Drugs had a new album. It's amazing. There's like insane amounts of very talented people putting incredible stuff out into the world. First, I just want to say to my family, Martha, Craigie, Carmen, Pammy, I love you. I'm so blessed to have you guys. My son now is obsessed with Scooby-Doo, Spider-Man for a long time. Now it's Scooby. Oh, yeah, man. He gets Finally. up at yeah 5.55 a.m. Daddy, can I watch Scooby-Doo? No, son, it's going to be PBS Kids. Because that's how we roll in this. No, Scooby, why won't you let me watch Scooby? So I'm watching Scooby-Doo occasionally with him. And I realize why the culture went the way it did. You watch Scooby-Doo. They put everything on the effing dog, man. Everything on the effing dog. Like the dog has to like, he's the thing that obviously the show's named after the dog. They put the dog as the point of the spear. He's point man with these monsters. Like they never learn whatever. There's Shaggy and Scooby. You guys go be point on the monsters. Then the dog likes basically shields all of them. So a whole generation becomes obsessed with their dogs. And here we are today, 2022. It's all Scooby-Doo. And I'm sitting here with my son watching Scooby. And uh, then every morning, Dad, what's the Schecter of Shadow Canyon? Was that a Scooby-Doo thing, son? Daddy, what's the Scarlet Avenger? Was that? And I forgot about how much product placement there is in Scooby-Doo. I just watched a Vince McMahon WWE Scooby-Doo where they go to WWE City and like they're all wrestling there. Although I will say one of the wrestling ones, the monsters were the kids because they didn't want their dad to get hurt. 
because he was a wrestler. And at the end, I was like, oh, twist. The dad's like, but this time, Scooby and Shaggy, the monster did win because I'm not going to wrestle anymore. And then he like grabbed his kids and he was like, you're right, kids. I was like, oh, that's a touching Scooby-Doo. Sia was like in, I was like, Sia's in Scooby-Doo. And they go to Palm Springs to kick it with Sia and her personal assistant. Dude, I actually laughed. I was like, kudos for getting met on this. Sia's personal assistant was the villain because she wanted to frame Sia to get Sia's money so she could open up her own Pilates studio in Italy. That was the ending. <laughs> I was like, am I watching this? And my son's like, what's Pilates? What's Italy? I'm like, oh, Craig, it's 545 in the morning. The, anyway, as always, you can go to uh, secretmovieclub.com. You can write us a community. It's secretmovieclub.com. Guys, thank you. I will see you next week. We are doing Secret Movie Club 89, which is actually going to be about when comedians branch out and take chances. Robin Williams, Dead Poet Society would almost be, or although he was doing it from the beginning. You know, World According to Garp is actually probably one of his first real dramatic roles. Yeah, I, I can't remember watching it again. It, it kind of traumatized me. I thought, I was, I was expecting it to be a lighthearted comedy, but no, that movie's dark. Uh, but anyway, Robin Williams, Jim Carrey then with Truman Show, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and Adam Sandler, very successfully Punch Drunk Love, Uncut Gems, and many more. This goes back to like Bob Hope, actually, and Charlie Chaplin. So we will we will talk about that. As usual, the episode was edited by Chief Creative Content Officer Connor Lloyd Cruz. Thank you, guys. I will see you next week. Bye. I love you, family.